Um, we're going to be reading Acts 19, 11 through 27. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in, practic in, in practicality, the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger not only about our trade, or not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone. It is wonderful to be back in person, praising God, hearing from his word together. I'm going to move these drumsticks out of the way. Uh, my name is Peter. If we haven't met before, there's a lot of faces here that I recognize, a few faces that I don't. We're so glad that you could join us. I said, my name's Peter. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been working our way through Acts. Acts was written by a guy called Luke, the same Luke who wrote the first gospel uh, of Jesus. And Acts is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. It's sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But at the very beginning of his book, Luke tells us that Acts is the second volume of his work, and the first volume tells us what Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke is saying that Acts is actually what Jesus continued to do and teach. Acts is the continuing work, the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Last week, we saw that the pattern of church growth looked something like this. It said last week we saw that the church grew, grew through partnering together in service and support. The church grew through persuading others of the truthfulness of their message. And that all of this work required perseverance. Perseverance because the work really didn't happen overnight very, very often. Perseverance because the work is hard. Last week we saw the pattern of church growth. 
This week, we're going to see the consequences of church growth. Last week, we saw what happens inside the church as it grows. This week, we're going to see what happens outside the church as it grows. You probably noticed, as the me read for us, that it's not always pretty. It's not always pretty because the Word of God confronts people. It confronts those, some of whom are spiritually close to the church, and it confronts those who are diametrically opposed to the church. The Word of God is confronting. The Word of God is uncomfortable. The Word of God challenges everyone that it encounters. Whether you're a Christian tonight or not, God's Word is confronting. In one of his later letters, Paul, the guy we're looking at tonight, writes that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Paul tells us that the Word of God is alive, not dead. It's sharp, not blunt. It divides soul and spirit. What's the difference between soul and spirit? Well, that's the point. The Word of God divides even those things that we think are the same. The Word of God finds a division there. It's sharp. It separates things. It's confronting. The Word of God makes us uncomfortable. In our passage this evening, we're going to see how the Word of God corrects confusion about Jesus, and we're going to see how the Word of God confronts every other religion outside of Jesus. But hopefully, by the end of the evening, after, after seeing how the Word of God corrects and confronts, we'll see that the Word of God also comforts those who trust in Jesus. It comforts those who trust in Jesus because it is the only way to find life. Keith and Demi talked about that, didn't they? It's the only way to find eternal life. Let's pray as we open up God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are the true and the living God. Thank You that You are a God not made with human hands or invented by human minds, but the true and the living God who has made Yourself known in the person of the Lord Jesus. As we open up Your Word this evening, we ask that You would, by Your Spirit, correct us in what needs to be corrected, confront in us what needs to be confronted, and comfort us where we need to be comforted. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Before we see how the Word of God corrects, confronts, and comforts, it'll be helpful for all of us to first of all consider the context that this passage appears in. Last week, we were in Corinth. Corinth was that great Greek city about 30 miles west of Athens. And Corinth was known for its sexuality. It was the city of sex. This week, we're in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was on the western coast of Turkey, so quite a bit away from Corinth. And like Corinth, it was large and very, very wealthy. But where Corinth was known as the city of sex, Ephesus was known as the city of spirituality, the city of superstition. You see, Ephesus was built in the shadow of the Temple of Artemis. You've probably not heard of the Temple of Artemis, but if you've been around back in those days, you definitely would have. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Just like today, when you think of Paris, you think of the Eiffel Tower. When you think of New York, you think of the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. If you were around back in those days and you heard the word Ephesus, the first thing you would think is the Temple of Artemis. It defined Ephesus as a city. It captured the essence of what that city was about, the worship of the goddess Artemis. And this made Ephesus a city dominated by superstition and witchcraft. It should be no surprise that later, whenever Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, one of the central themes of the whole book is the superiority of Jesus over all other spiritual forces. Of course, he would write that to a city like Ephesus. He outlines in in Ephesians, the letter, that the church is the temple of God. It's not a building. We can see some of these details in the text that tell us what the city of Ephesus was like, the questions the Christians in Ephesus faced. Faced. Ephesus was the city of spiritual power and superstition. We saw hints of that in our passage, didn't we? Demon possession, the burning of magic books, riots caused by the idol industry. The message of Jesus the only true and living God, the only means of eternal life, was unthinkable in the spiritual city of Ephesus because the Word of God confronts superstition. But before we get to that confrontation, the first thing that Luke outlines for us is the correction of confusion. Correction of confusion about Jesus the correction of confusion in the church and the correction of confusion outside of the church because the Word of God corrects confusion. Our reading began in verse 11, but if you've got a Bible, if you look over the column or back a page, you'll see that just before our reading began, there were two instances of confusion surrounding Jesus. The first confusion was with a guy called Apollos. Apollos was a really smart guy. He came from Alexandria, which is the great academic center of the Roman Empire. He was a Jew who had learned some things about Jesus, and he was teaching about Jesus. Luke even tells us he was teaching accurate things about Jesus. But his knowledge about Jesus was incomplete. And so Priscilla and Aquila, who we met last week, took Apollos aside and gently showed him the truth about Jesus. They filled in in him what was lacking. The second instance of confusion comes immediately after that. Uh, That's where Paul finds 12 disciples of John the Baptist who had completely misunderstood who Jesus is. And the third confusion that Luke records for us, which is the first one uh, from our reading, needs to be, he shows us that there needs to be corrections made concerning the name of Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, was doing this, One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. 
he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, this is a really strange passage, isn't it? Last week, we saw that the book of Acts is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. What that means is, is that we shouldn't necessarily expect to see all of the weird and wonderful things that happened in Acts in the church today. And that's exactly what Luke tells us right here. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Why does Paul say they're extraordinary miracles? Aren't miracles, by definition, extraordinary? Luke is highlighting for us here that what is happening in Acts wasn't normal. This is a specific time in church history when God was especially demonstrating the truth of the church's message. And remember, we're in Ephesus, the city of superstition. It's not really surprising, is it, that in this city that was obsessed with demons and the supernatural, that visible manifestations, visible demonstrations of God's power like this were necessary to convince people that what the apostles were saying is true. The only time we read of anything like this anywhere else in the Bible is, you might remember, when the woman grabs Jesus' cloak and is healed from her bleeding. These are extraordinary times, according to Luke himself. We shouldn't expect this to be the norm in the church. Then there's these strange Jewish exorcists. What's going on there? Luke tells us that they are the sons of the Jewish chief priest Sceva. Now, if you're going to have a son, please don't call him Sceva. That's a terrible name. These Jewish sons saw the power that was manifesting around the church and thought, we'll have a bit of that. But they didn't know Jesus. They liked what they saw. They saw some of the the power and benefits that came with it. And so they started to use Jesus' name as a sort of magic word in their exorcisms. But Jesus' name isn't a magic word. You see, only those who are united to Jesus, only those who have trusted in Jesus, can call on his name for help. This passage warns us, doesn't it, of the danger of misusing Jesus' name. It's very sad that there are people out there, there might be some people in here who misuse the name of Jesus. People who use the name of Jesus for their own ends. There are even church leaders who claim to speak for Jesus, but deny what Jesus says. For example, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But there are many churches that openly deny this teaching. Some churches teach that Jesus is only a way, a truth, a life, that you can have access to God in a number of ways of which Jesus is one. Other churches teach that you can only access God, no one comes to the Father, except through the institution of the church. No one comes to the Father without performing these specific rituals. 
It's very possible to find religious leaders using the name of Jesus, but who do not know Jesus, or who openly deny Jesus' teaching. We saw two weeks ago that it is only the Word of God that grows Christians with the Bereans. We saw last week that it was the persuading of others of the truth of God's Word that grows the church. And look at how Luke summarizes what's happened so far. Verse 17, uh, when this became known to Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It's the word of the Lord that grows the church. We've seen it again and again. And it's the word of the Lord that corrects confusion surrounding Jesus. And we're about to see that it's the word of the Lord that confronts every other religion outside of Jesus. Did you notice how many books were burned in Ephesus? They did a sum and they worked out that there were 50,000 drachmas worth of book burnings. I'm not assuming any of you know what a drachma is. I have to look it up myself. A drachma was a piece of silver that equated to about one day's work uh, for your average day laborer. So what we have here is 50,000 days wages worth of books being burned in Ephesus. That's over four million pounds in today's money if you take the average income of someone in Northern Ireland. Magic books were everywhere in Ephesus. It should be no surprise that these Christians possessed some before they were Christians. And these magic books would have been expensive, but four million pounds worth? What this tells us is, is that the church was huge. Sometimes when we read the New Testament or a church of a church in a city in the New Testament, we think that the church was a group of 10 people meeting in someone's living room. And in some places, that's exactly what it was. The churches were tiny in some cities, but in Ephesus, there were hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians. They would have met in homes, public buildings, that sort of thing. But the church in Ephesus was really hundreds of churches in Ephesus. And for these Christians, the Word of God had turned their world upside down. They knew that they had to set aside all of their previous religions and rituals and superstitions. Why? Because Jesus was the only way to God. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And because Jesus had opened up the way to God for them, they set those things aside that might lure them back to a false way of living. They set aside those things that they used to turn to for comfort, for security. And they did that not to earn Jesus' favor. They did it because they knew they had ultimate security in Jesus. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, is there anything in your life 
that leads you back to your way of living before Jesus? Is there something that you cling to to find comfort and security or value outside of Jesus? What a great thing to set those things aside like these Ephesian Christians did because you know that you are secure in Jesus. Given the temple of Artemis, the superstitious nature of Ephesus, as we saw earlier, it's no surprise that these newfound beliefs in Jesus rocked these Ephesian Christians to the core. It turned their world upside down. But it also rocked the very foundations of the city of Ephesus itself. The whole city was feeling the effect of this church. Suddenly, no one was buying magic books anymore. No one was buying idols anymore. They gave up on those previous practices and beliefs and rituals that they'd previously been engaged in. It's hard for us to imagine what this would be like, because everything that we buy is from all over the world. Everything we buy is from somewhere else. We buy a t-shirt that's designed in America, made in India, sold in England, and shipped to Belfast. Our economy is global, but that's not really how it worked in the ancient world. The economic impact of the church in Ephesus rocked the city. The closest thing I can think that it would be like here in Northern Ireland would be if a significant proportion of the population decided that they weren't going to drink tea anymore, they weren't going to eat potatoes anymore, and they weren't going to eat meat anymore. Our economy would crash. Christianity confronted the religion, the religions of Ephesus. It affected its economy. It was so radical. It was so life-changing for these Christians. It affected the economy so much that it caused a riot. And for the people that were rioting, it wasn't simply their pockets that drove them to riot. We can see that from their words. You see, the gospel wasn't just confronting their economy. It was confronting the idolatry itself. Let's read verse 23. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Now, listen to this. Here is what Paul was preaching. Here is what the world outside heard. He, that's Paul, says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Christianity confronts every religion. It highlights the problems of every other religious system, and it declares itself to be the only way to God. Remember Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. That was a radically offensive message in the first century. 
It's a radically offensive message in the 21st century. It's not politically correct, is it, to criticize another set of beliefs, to say that there's something deficient or inconsistent with them. But the Bible is absolutely clear. All other religions do not work. It's popular these days to say that all religions get you to heaven. They all get you there eventually. Religion is true if it's true for you. But the problem is that's impossible. Even a momentary glance at different religious systems will show you that if one of these things is true, the other one can't be. Let me give you one example. Islam declares that there is one God, his name is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Jesus, according to Islam, was a prophet of Allah. And Jesus, according to the Quran, was never crucified. He never died. He, wasn't, he was never on a cross. Someone else was in his place. And then he just ascended into heaven. The Bible says dozens and dozens and dozens of times Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. They can't both be true. It's as simple as that. They can't both be true. If one is true, the other isn't. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? But that's what the Word of God does. It corrects our misunderstandings about Jesus. It confronts every other religion outside of Jesus. But the Word of God does something else too. It offers a comfort that no other religion can offer. It offers true comfort. We saw, we caught a glimpse of that comfort in the church in Ephesus itself. These new Christians burning millions of pounds worth of their, previous, of their old religious texts. What would it take for you to destroy probably the most valuable thing that you own? What would it take? Notice the Christians didn't just put the books away. They didn't sell them on so that they could regain some of the cost. They burned them, gone forever. Something radical must have happened in their lives, something that transcended their superstition, something that was more important to them than their bank balance. Seems to me that it was the comfort, the comfort of knowing who Jesus was and what he did for them. An old professor at St. Andrew's University, a man called Thomas Chalmers, called this, this setting aside of old things that used to bring you pleasure in the name of Jesus. He called it, it's a great phrase, but it's a tricky one, the expulsive power of a new affection. The casting off of things that you used to cherish because you found something far, far better. That's what happened in Ephesus. That's what the good news of Jesus did for these new Christians. And that's what the good news about Jesus can do for you tonight. Back in March, Google announced that the word prayer 
had been searched for more than ever since Google was founded. They did some calculations, as Google do, and that for, they found that for every 80,000 new cases of COVID-19, the Googling of the word prayer doubled. I'm not sure that our generation, and by that I mean if you're in your 60s or if you're six years old, I'm trying to be inclusive, has ever been more aware of our helplessness, have we? Whatever certainty we felt about the world, whatever certainty we felt we had before coronavirus, much of it is gone, isn't it? We used to think we were invincible. We used to think that the world would only continue to improve. But now we know that that's not the case. Let me tell you that the comfort that Jesus offers transcends all uncertainties. Jesus offers a better life. He actually offers a better life now. He doesn't offer an easier life. He doesn't offer a simpler life. But he offers a better life, a life united to him, a life of knowing with certainty that God is our Father, a life knowing that we, despite all of our flaws and problems, all of us, a life, if you are trusting in Jesus, a life with access to God himself. Jesus offers a better life, a life connected into the community of God's people. Jesus offers a better life now, but he also offers an even better life in eternity. The superstitious Ephesians were terrified of the gods. They would have offered sacrifices, performed rituals. They gave their time, money, energy, ultimately hoping to sort of twist the arms of the gods so that they would bless them, bless them in this life, and grant them access to their version of heaven in the next. The Ephesians, who weren't Christians, the regular Ephesian who worshipped in the temple of Artemis, they had absolutely no idea if any of this worked. They simply hoped and prayed. But the gospel The good news of what Jesus did offered these Ephesian Christians certainty. Certainty that if they placed their trust in Jesus' sacrifice, they wouldn't have to make another one. They wouldn't have to go to the temple anymore to please God because Jesus had already done that for them. You see, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't simply a tragic miscarriage of earthly justice. Jesus' death on the cross was the administration of ultimate heavenly justice. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve so that we can avoid that punishment and enjoy eternal life with God, eternal life that starts now and eternal life that goes on into eternity forever. The Ephesians thought that the gods would help them in this life and bless them if they kept them happy. Some of us think God is like that, don't we? God will bless me if I'm really good. God will let me into heaven if I'm really good. We think, just like the Ephesians thought, that God is some sort of Santa in the sky. 
If we're good, we get presents. If we're not, we don't. But that's not how it works at all. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That is where ultimate comfort and certainty and security is found. If this is a new idea to you, if this is something you'd like to talk about, I would love to talk with you about this afterwards. There'll be an opportunity shortly to fill out a welcome to church card. I'll explain what that is in a moment. But don't leave this building leaving this unexamined. Nearly 500 years ago, a group of Christians in Europe wrote a catechism. Now, a catechism is a group of questions that outlined a summary of the Christian faith. The first question of the catechism was this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to this answer. This is what the gospel brings. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The Word of God corrects our misunderstandings about Jesus. The Word of God confronts every other religion outside of Jesus. And the Word of God comforts us in a way that we can never be comforted with the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for recording this account of the church in Ephesus for us. Father, we pray that whatever uh, corrections need to be made in our hearts concerning the identity or the work of Jesus, we pray that you would correct them. Father, if there is something in us that needs to be confronted by your word, we pray that you would confront it. Father, we long for you to comfort us with your word. Thank you for the certainty uh, that we have in the gospel. Thank you for the certainty that we have of our eternity. Father, we pray for those of us tonight who lack that certainty, that you would grant it to them, not through anything else other than faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.